0: Um, I'm going to deliver the sermon this morning, but before I get into the sermon, I just want to share with you uh, that things are happening in nextgen, across our country. Um, a couple weeks ago, my coworker, Ashley Buckley, our, our early childhood director, and I we went on a little trip. We were going to spy out the land. and we were going to look at other churches to see what their children's ministries are like, because we have this big project that we have on the go. And even though we're slowing down a little bit in it, we're still trusting in faith that it's going to happen. And so Ashley and I went, and we saw a whole bunch of really neat things that different churches, we saw some big churches, some small churches, and we talked to other children's ministry leaders. And across the board, we were all facing the same challenges, but across the board every single one of them said, but God is faithful, and we're seeing new families come to Christ, and we're seeing God change the hearts of our kids. So that was super exciting to hear that there's things happening across our Western Canada. And this week... I had the opportunity to sneak out to Kettleston Camp a couple times, to senior teen camp. I see that there's some of our senior teen campers here in-house today. Way to go, guys, for getting here after your busy week. Um, And it was just so exciting to see these kids rising up to the call of being a disciple of Christ and and stepping out and following the paths that he has for them and discovering their calling. So that was super exciting for me. And right now, today in our class, Bryson is teaching our two to five year olds about the promises of God and how God is faithful. And I just am like, I can see God moving in the next generation, and that's exciting to me. And I want it to keep happening, and we have some opportunities for that this summer. I want to say thank you for as many people who have signed up already to help with our Sunday morning programs. We knocked a whole bunch off last week. There's still more opportunities for you to take one Sunday and serve in our kids' programs. So after you're done here, pop in at the back, talk with Tiana about that. The other big thing we have happening is... If you don't know it, I'm going to be very disappointed. There we go. Yes, I'm an interactive speaker, okay? So you guys are going to have to be answering me sometimes. All right, so Mega Sports Camp. That is a big deal here at Hillcrest. This is our 18th year of doing Mega Sports Camp. And we have had a lot of people sign up for some of the roles but the biggest thing that we need the biggest thing that we need is the people who can come and be our huddle leaders that means you're here all morning five days a week but it also means you get to be the ones that have these relationship with the kids the one-on-ones you get to share the gospel maybe you will be the one that gets to lead a child as they pray to receive Christ as their savior and that is one of the biggest needs, because that is the thing that determines the, the huddle leaders, the how many huddle leaders we have actually determines how many campers we can take. And so, Hillcrest, I would ask you, challenge you, pray and think about, is there a way that from August 14th to 18th, you could make time in your mornings to come and lead a group of children You don't have to do all the main teaching. You're just going off of a guide that we give you. You get to lead them in discussions and just shine God's light for them. So think, pray, and if you're ready to commit or even just have questions, then go to SummerServe hillcrestmj.com slash summerserve, and send that off to us, fill it in, send it off, and one of us will get back to you to talk about how you could maybe be part of transforming the next generation. All right, so that doesn't count as any of my sermon time, all right? So those of you who are little watchers, watching your watch the whole time, we are not starting at 11, we are starting at 11.05, all right, so, and, pardon? But Bryson, yeah, Bryson's fine. All right, so, I'm apologizing up front again to our, our uh, cameramen because I'm also a mover as I move. So, for those of you that are coming from us at home today, welcome. We're glad you're joining us. I'm sorry if the motion makes you a little sick today. All right. So, we are in a series called My Favorite Bible Story. Now, last week, a really gifted and super handsome speaker kicked us off. For those of you who don't know, that was my son, Nate, and I thought he did a really good job, and if you missed it, you should go back and watch it online, because he did a great job. And so, today, I am talking about my favorite Bible story, and from the time I was week- wee wee little, my favorite Bible story has been Elijah at Mount Carmel. Now, this past March, Kent and I had the opportunity to go to Israel and we actually got to go to Mount Carmel. And so before I start telling the story, I just kind of wanted to show you guys what it looks like. So When you get to Mount Carmel, there's like there's a chapel there and there's a whole bunch of things there. They're saying this is an important spot. And so they had that first one you saw, the lush, lush, beautiful gardens. And this statue here, this is a statue that is depicting the victory that God gives Elijah over the prophets of Baal. And then let's go to the next picture. So this is the view off of one side of the roof. Look at how far you can see. It was kind of cloudy that day, so we couldn't see as far as we've told you could see. And let's go to the next one. Look at that. Look at how far you can see. You can see so far. And people from far away would have been able to see what happens on Mount Carmel that we're going to talk about. All right. So, The other thing that happened when I was in Israel is that I shot a bunch of little videos for the kids in our Sunday school just because I was so excited and I wanted to share with them. Look at what I see, you guys! And so I have a little video that the kids haven't even seen yet from the top of Mount Carmel. Let's take a look. Alright kids, right now I am at the top of Mount Carmel. If you don't know where that is, that's where Elijah met with the prophets of Baal and challenged them to a duel between the gods. The god of Baal or the god Yahweh. And they tried to call down fire and their god didn't answer because he's not real. But when Elijah came and prayed, God sent fire down from the sky and it ate up all the stones and the water and everything that was there. This is where God showed his power, kids. Isn't it amazing? God is the one true God. Alright, and that's my sermon. (laughs) Just kidding. You guys didn't think I was going to let you off that easy, hey? (laughs) There's so much more to the story that I actually want to dig out of it, and that's what we're going to do today. So to establish some context for this part of God's story, we have to go back all the way to the very beginning. Don't worry, I'm not going to go through everything, but I'm just going to pick up on some key things. So when God was creating the world and everything in it, he created people to look like him, to be like him, to be made in his image. And the purpose that he made us for, in part, was to be in relationship with God. And everything was really good at the start, but it didn't take long for things to change. Adam and Eve chose their own way over God's way. Kids, what is the word we use for choosing our own way over God's way? Sin, that's right. We call that sin. When we choose God's way over our own way, that's sin. And sin broke God's perfect creation. It broke that relationship, and it brought separation between God and people. And now, all of creation, including you and me, suffer the consequences of that broken relationship. But God had a rescue plan in mind. He had a plan to rescue his people from sin, And restore that broken relationship. He started with a special family that grew into a big nation. And who knows, what is the name of that special family that became a nation? (laughs) Someone has to say it nice and loud. Israel. Thank you. All right. Israel. And it was through this relationship that God had with Israel that the people learned so much about his character and his power. And actually that's when we look at the story of God's people, that's how we can discover his character and his power. So God had a special relationship with these people, and it was called a covenant. Everyone say covenant. Covenant, okay. Kids, do you remember in the fall, we spent a lot of time talking about covenant. And we talked about how a covenant is kind of like a contract where there are conditions and terms. So you do this, and I'll do this, and this is the end result. And so that is kind of like a business deal, right? Well, a covenant is kind of like that, but it's more because with a contract, you can have a contract with someone but no relationship with them. Covenant is all about relationship. It's similar to the contract in that it lays out boundaries and rules and expectations for each party, but it also includes personal commitment to the other person. So marriage is an example of a covenant. And covenant usually involves promises and sacrifices for the sake of the relationship. And relationship is what God was and still is after with his people. And as a part of this covenant relationship, the one who had spoken creation into existence said to this nation of Israel, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Now, we know that God never lies, right? And we know that God is always faithful. And we know that God always keeps his promises. But what about people? Do people always tell the truth? No. Are people always faithful? Do people always keep their promises? Mm -mm. And that is what happened with the Israelites. Even though God had been faithful to them and had done some amazing things for them, like delivering them from slavery in Egypt and giving them a brand new beautiful land to call their own, you saw that in the pictures, the hearts of the people continually turned away from God. They walked the other way. Now, Israel's kings, they did not do a good job of leading the people of Israel to pursue God. And the worst one of them all was a guy named Ahab. And this is what the Bible tells us about Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 16. It says, Ahab did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He did more to provoke the Lord's anger than any other of the kings of Israel before him. So, okay, he's got some big strikes against him, hey? See, God had told the people not to marry people who worship other gods. But King Ahab did it anyways. He married a woman named Jezebel. Jezebel worshipped a false god named Baal, and also another one named Asherah. So, not only did Ahab allow her to continue worshipping those false gods... But he joined her in it, and he had them build a temple and an altar for the people to come and to worship this false, ba- false god, Baal. And he also declared the worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to be illegal, And where the king goes, the people follow. Because king after king after king encouraged, then participated in, and then allowed them to worship these idols. Statues. This is what we're talking about, an idol. A statue made by human hands out of wood or stone covered with gold and silver. And that's what they're worshiping? That seems so strange to me. In Habakkuk 2, 18 to 19, it says, What God is an idol carved by man or, ca- or a cast image that deceives you? How foolish to trust in your own creation, a God that can't even talk. Well, Ahab was leading the people to worship idols. What kind of shape do you think that covenant is in? Not very good, Hey? Had God changed? No, he was just as faithful. But the people's hearts, they were not faithful. So God was going to do something about it. And he was going to remind them of the covenant. So now, enter Elijah. Here he comes. So the Bible tells us that this guy is a Tishbite from Gilead. Now, they don't actually know a specific location where this place is they they can't actually pinpoint it but we do know that this was like a remote area you know kind of rugged and rocky and and kind of backwoodsy kind of thing and so i kind of imagine elijah is kind of like a mountain man guy you know he's like got you know heavily tanned skin and maybe kind of you know shaggy and rugged beard and messy hair and that kind of stuff maybe he would wear flannel i don't know but this guy, he was kind of a loner, okay? So some say, some of the scholars say that he could have been a shepherd. So he was used to physical labor, but he was also used to solitude and being by himself out in the desert, not in the wilderness. It was more like a rugged wilderness. And so this guy would not have been trained to be in the presence of kings, he did not know all the proper rules rules and manners for that kind of thing. So basically, a hick from the sticks, okay? So he's not up with current culture. He doesn't fit in or follow the crowd, but that's a good thing because possibly this seclusion from society is what helped to kind of protect him and shield him from the influences that might have pulled his heart towards idolatry, like the rest of Israel had happened. But Elijah had his heart set upon the Lord. Now, because he was a no one from nowhere, he did not feel the need to impress anyone, not even the king, and that was a good thing, too. I'm a people pleaser, and I don't like conflict and that kind of stuff, but Elijah, he had some tough messages that he was gonna have to deliver, and, and he wasn't gonna make him popular. And so it was a good thing that he was not worried about this. So one more quick fun fact about Elijah is that his name, his actual name means the Lord is God. Yahweh is God. What better spokesperson could you have than one whose name actually declares the message he's being sent to deliver? The Lord is God. Okay, so now we come to this first meeting between Elijah and King Ahab, and I don't know how Elijah gets access to the king. This backwoods mountain guy comes along, and somehow he's in with the king, but he was there, and this is his message in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Elijah, who was from Tishba in Gilead, told King Ahab, here's the message, As surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, the God I serve, there will be no dew or rain during the next few years until I give the word. Oof, that's harsh. But I can just imagine Ahab and Jezebel and the rest of the court kind of laughing at this declaration. (laughs) What? That's ridiculous. You can't stop the rain. Kids, was Elijah going to stop the rain in his own power? No. Whose power was going to stop the rain? God's power. That's right. Elijah identifies the Lord as the one he serves. Elijah himself is just God's representative, and God would do it by his power. But this is a big deal, this no rain thing. Because if this really happens and there is no rain and no dew in Israel for a few years, what's going to happen to the country of Israel? No food. That's right. The plants are going to start dying. The trees are going to start dying. The crops will not be able to grow. The grass will all die. So the animals won't have anything to eat. So the animals will die. And then, because the animals are dying and the plants aren't growing, the people might start dying. Drought would mean big trouble for the people. Israel's an agricultural society and they are dependent on rain. So that lush greenery that you saw, all of that would have been dead instead of lush like that. All right. So there was another reason that Elijah's declaration of no rain was significant. Let's go back to that covenant idea that we talked about. So Part of the covenant agreement that God made with the Israelites is that they would obey him. They would obey his laws because his laws were good and for their good. And this was a good deal for them, too, because he promised blessing for them when they obeyed. But part of his law said that they would have no other gods. Everyone say, no other gods. They were to have no other gods except for him, and they would not make or bow down to an idol. In Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 to 17, it says, be careful, don't let your heart be deceived, so that you turn away from the Lord and serve and worship other gods. If you do, the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut up the sky and hold back the rain, And the ground will fail to produce its harvests. Then you will quickly die in the land that the Lord is giving you. Whew. Tough consequences. But the consequences were clearly stated. And the people of Israel would have been familiar with the covenant and its consequences. It was passed down generation to generation to generation. They would have been taught about it. So Elijah's declaration... Was a way of reminding them, the king and all of Israel, about Yahweh and this broken covenant. Now, there's one more thing that makes this even more significant this no rain idea. The false god that the people were worshiping, Baal and his cohort, Asherah, they were known as the gods of rain, storms, and fertility. Okay, so Baal is supposed to be able to make it rain. He's supposed to be able to facilitate the flourishing of the nation by sending rain. An extended drought announced by and brought on by the prophet of Yahweh would make it clear to everyone, Baal is not a true god and has no power at all. This is a direct pointed attack. So Elijah comes in, and he drops this bomb, and then we don't know what happened, but the next thing we know, God tells him, go hide in the wilderness. And so he goes back to the wilderness, and over the next three years, God hides Elijah. First of all, by a remote brook in the wilderness, and then in a city called Zarephath. Everyone say Zarephath. Oh, good job. And that place was outside the nation of Israel, ironically close to the place where Jezebel grew up. Now, I encourage you, we're not going to go into that part, but I encourage you to go back this week, maybe as a family or just by yourself, and read through that rest of that First Kings chapter 17, because there's some amazing miracles that God does in that time, and he's preparing Elijah for what's to come. So, Meanwhile, back in Israel, what do you think's happening? Everything is dry. The drought is killing everything. So just like Elijah predicted, this drought hit hard and was getting worse. And with no rain or dew, the people were suffering. And Jezebel and Ahab were furious, and they wanted to get Elijah. And so they had people hunting for him all over the nation. And everyone in the nation knew, this guy's in trouble. But they could not find Elijah. And so, since they couldn't find Elijah, they began going after the other people who stood for the Lord. And they were killing the rest of God's prophets, but thankfully, there's a little story in there, too, that you should read. A guy named Obadiah was able to rescue 100 of God's prophets and keep them safe in a cave. Go back and read through that after we're done here. All right, so they were suffering. Do you think, with all the suffering, that they had learned anything yet? Hmm, I would hope so, absolutely. You're right. So finally, after about three and a half years, God tells Elijah in 1 Kings 18, verse 1 and 2, he says, go and present yourself to King Ahab. Tell him that I will soon send rain. So Elijah went to appear before Ahab. So he goes, he's got the message. Good news is coming. Rain is coming. And this is what Ahab does when he sees him. He says, so, in verse 17, when Ahab saw him, he exclaimed, is it really you, O troublemaker of Israel? I don't think Ahab has caught on to anything yet. I don't think he feels any responsibility for his sin or Israel's sin that caused this discipline. He was doing something that I think we all do it sometimes. He's trying to shift the blame, right? He's trying to put it onto to someone else. But Elijah does not go for this. He's like, no way. This is all on you, dude. This is your fault. He said, this is all you. You and your family because you refuse to obey God and you choose to worship Baal instead. So... If the drought isn't enough to catch Ahab's attention, maybe what God would do next would do it. So Elijah tells Ahab, call all the people of Israel to come and join me on Mount Carmel. Bring all the prophets of Baal and Asherah and bring them with you as well. So Ahab sends out the message and tells everyone to come to Mount Carmel because Elijah's there and he's going to do something. Now, A lot of people show up. Remember, he's being hunted for these last three years. Everyone in Israel would know the name Elijah the prophet, and they would know that it was at his word that God shut up the skies. And so now they hear Elijah's back, and something's going to happen. And what do you think they're looking for? Rain. That's right. They are looking for rain. They're not looking for God. They're looking for Rain. They're still looking just for the thing. I mean, that would be an easy thing to miss, though, because when you're desperate and you're thirsty, you want that rain. But anyway, so all these people come, and when they get there, Elijah steps up in front of the people, and he steps up in front of Ahab, in front of all the prophets of Baal, and in front of the people, and he says to them, How much longer will you waver hobbling between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. But the people were completely silent. They had no response to what what Elijah just said. And so he continues on and he says, Okay, look, there's only me, just one prophet of the Lord, coming up against 450 of the prophets of Baal. Let's settle this once and for all, okay? Let's see whose God is greater. You prepare an altar of sacrifice to your God. You lay wood on it. You put a bowl on it for an offering. I will prepare an altar for the Lord God. And we won't set fire to either. We're just going to wait Instead, you call on the name of your God, Baal, and I will call on the name of the Lord God. And whichever God answers by setting fire to the wood, he is the one true God. And the people are like, oh yeah, let's do that. Okay, so things get going. And Elijah says you go ahead. You go first. I have no problem. You guys can even pick the wood and pick the bull that you want. You guys just take every advantage that you can have. He's not afraid of giving away the advantage because he's got a greater advantage, right? Okay, so he gives away this advantage, and they prepare their sacrifice, and they begin calling out Oh, Baal, answer us, answer us. And they're crying out, asking their God of rain and storm and fertility to come and to send fire. They're calling out and asking him. And there's 450 of them. So this could be pretty noisy, right? And so they're calling out and they're asking him to send rain and send fire. And nothing happens. There's no response. And so they keep going, and they, they start dancing around and jumping around and shouting, and nothing happens. There's still silence. And around noon, Elijah is kind of starting to find this funny, and he starts kind of mocking them. And he's like, hey, guys, you better have to shout louder, because you know what? If he's a god, he's probably busy, you know, thinking about stuff. Maybe he's in the bathroom. It actually says that in some translations. And maybe he's on a trip or sleeping when you need to wake him up. So you better shout louder. And this Drove those prophets of Baal into an even greater frenzy. And they're jumping and shouting and crying out and and yelling and hobbling around. I like that some translations say hobbling around. So for those of us who like have sores, aches, and pains, hobbling around, and they start cutting themselves with knives and swords, all in an effort to get the attention of their God. And I love what it says in. 18 Verse 29, it says, They raved all afternoon until the time of evening sacrifice, but still there was no sound, no reply, no response. Why was there no response? Baal isn't real and he has no power. He has no power. All right, so now it's Elijah's turn, and he calls all the people of Israel. These people who have just watched Baal's prophets cry and in this crazy frenzy, trying to get the attention of their God with no response. They see that, and then they come around Elijah as he begins to repair the altar of the Lord, it says. He takes 12 stones, 12, the number of tribes of Israel, and he takes those stones and he rebuilds the altar to the name of Yahweh the Lord. This is another way that he is reminding the people of their history and their covenant relationship with God. As we rebuild this altar to the Lord, I'm calling you back to your roots, your history. So then he does an odd thing. After he has built this altar, then he digs a trench around it. He puts the wood on the altar and the bull. That's expected. But then he tells them to go get four large, large jars of water. Now, water is a hot commodity there, right? But he says, get four large jugs of, ho- of water. So, like, big jugs. We're, we're not just talking, like, you know, milk jug kind of thing. We're talking big jugs of water. And they come, and he says, dump it on the sacrifice. And they're like, are you sure? Yep. So he dumps it on the sacrifice. And then he says, do it again. And do it again. So three times they dump four jugs of water. How many is that, you guys? Three times Twelve. There you go. Smarty-patarty over there. Way to go. All right. So, twelve large jars of water have soaked everything. The wood, the stones, the bowl, even the trench is now full of water. And why do you think Elijah did that? There you go. To prove how powerful God is. Because things don't burn well when they're wet, do they? I imagine Elijah wanted to eliminate any doubt that the source of the fire to come was from Yahweh alone, that there were no tricks here. So, finally, the moment comes, and Elijah, fully confident in the ability, the authority, and power of his God, steps forward and says a simple prayer, O Lord, God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob, prove today that you are Lord in Israel and that I am your servant. Prove that I have done all this at your command. O oh Lord, answer me. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O oh God, that you, O oh Lord, are God and that you have brought them back to yourself. Immediately, the fire falls, and it consumes the sacrifice. It consumes the wood. It consumes the rocks and the dust and even the water in the trenches. And I wonder if there wasn't a moment of shocked silence as the reality of what just happened sinks in. And then the people, full of awe and wonder and fear and reverence and repentance, fall down to their knees, the Bible says, with their faces to the ground. And they cry out, the Lord! The Lord is God! Yahweh is God! And in that moment, their eyes are opened and their hearts are being turned back to the only one who is worthy of their worship and their adoration about their entire lives. And they are there crying out to the name of the Lord their God as he turns their hearts back to him. And I don't know how long this Old Testament altar call goes on. But as part of the response to God's amazing power that he has shown, Elijah has all 450 of the prophets of Baal killed as a way of removing their influence from the nation, removing the influence of those who have led the people in idolatry. Now, did you notice Elijah's prayer didn't have to be crazy and frenzied? He didn't have to drum up a response from God. He didn't even ask God for fire. Elijah's heart was for God's people. And his prayer said, God, show your power so that these hearts would turn back to you. Elijah's prayer reflected God's own heart for his people. And I don't wonder if that's why God's response is so complete and so actually over the top to show them how much he wants their hearts to be fully his. And then, as if that day had not been packed enough with unbelievable events, Elijah reminds Ahab there's something else coming. Because remember, God had said that there would be rain. Rain. That blessing that the people had been so desperate for but weren't ready for until the fire of God had turned their hearts back to him. And verse 41, it says, turn my page here. Verse 41, it says, Elijah says to Ahab, go, go. Get something to eat and drink, for I hear a mighty rainstorm coming. Ooh, did you get goosebumps? I got goosebumps. Every time I practiced it, I got goosebumps. I hear a mighty rain coming. Oh, and so Ahab goes, and he eats, and he drinks. But Elijah returns to the top of Mount Carmel to pray. Now remember, God had told Elijah the rain is coming. So Elijah's fully confident. God is going to answer this prayer. And the Bible tells us that he still goes and he bows down low with his face between his knees and asks the Lord to open the heavens and send rain. After a while, Elijah tells his servant who's with him, he says, okay, I want you to go and look out toward the sea and tell me if you see anything. Do you see any clouds or anything that looks like a storm brewing? And so the servant goes out and he looks and he looks out and he comes back, no, I don't see anything, Elijah. And so Elijah goes back into prayer and he prays and he prays again and he sends the guy out again and he goes back and he's like, I don't see anything, Elijah. Elijah. And so Elijah, six times, he sends his servant out. And six times, his servant comes back and says, I don't see anything. But six times, Elijah returns to his prayer. Take note of this. The last prayer that Elijah prayed, God answered immediately, and his answer was big. But it's not always the way that prayer works, is it? This time, his prayer required an extended time of prayer and a continual time of prayer. Don't give up when your prayers don't get answered right away. But Elijah kept on praying. And finally, the seventh time, he sends that servant out. His servant is out here and he's looking and he's like, whoa, I see something. He comes back, Elijah, I see something. I see a cloud. It's about as big as a man's fist. That's not very big, is it? No, especially compared to that big fire that God just sent. But one little tiny cloud is enough for Elijah. And so he gets up and he tells his servant, go tell Ahab, tell him to get his chariots and get home fast because rain is coming. And soon the sky grows dark and the wind starts to blow and a heavy rain begins to fall. And now I need you all to participate with me and follow my lead. started to fall and the blessing of God started to come back upon the people. And what was amazing, Elijah at the top of Mount Carmel is given extra strength by the Lord. And he begins to run because he's getting caught in this torrential, torrential drown And he begins to run. And the Bible says that he ran so fast and so hard that he beat King Ahab back to the city of Jezreel. That is amazing, hey? God had shown his power. He had shown his power first by providing the rain to restore their land, and then, oh, sorry, first by providing the fire, and then by providing the rain. God showed he is the one true God and that he alone is to be worshiped. What a good and gracious God he is. I'm going to invite. worship team to start coming back up. There's more to Elijah's story. Go back. Keep reading. You're going to see a different Elijah if you keep reading a little farther. One who maybe you can relate to a little more, who has fear and anxiety and discouragement. But you're also going to see the same God that met him on the mountain is the God who meets him there in his fear too. I want to bring us back to the why of this story. See, God didn't just stop the rain because he was on a power trip. He didn't just send fire to show off and to scare people. God's motivation in all of this was relationship. He's the God who relentlessly pursues those he loves, and he will use any means necessary to catch our hearts. Many years later, There was another challenge between good and evil where God himself becomes the ultimate sacrifice that defeats sin and opens the way for everyone to return to him and walk in victory. Jesus Christ died on the cross taking the punishment we deserve because of our sin and because of our hard hearts. But sin didn't win, right? Because three days later, Jesus came back to life, showing the power that God has over sin, over death, and over all things. And because of that victory, the invitation is still open to each one of you. Turn your hearts back to God today. And maybe today is the day you do it for the first time, or maybe today is the day you do it for the 150 millionth time, but you can turn your hearts back to God today You can do that by praying a prayer of your own, or you can do that by praying a prayer simply like this. Dear Father, thank you that you love me and sent Jesus to die on the cross for my sin. I put my trust in Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Help me to live a life that honors you by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, I would encourage you, tell someone about it. Maybe the friend that you came with or someone in your family. Or if you don't have anyone here with you, you could tell one of the pastors or, or someone here from church, and we would love to celebrate with you. Maybe today, you need to take some extra time in prayer to talk to God about the condition of your heart. I would encourage you, take some time before you leave this space, this place. Before you leave your couch at home. If you, for those of you that are in-house, maybe even take a step forward and come and meet the Lord at the altar up front here while the band sings. God is in it all the way, and he wants your heart to be fully his. God, you are great and glorious and good. And we are astounded by your faithfulness and your power and your majesty and your glory. And God, I pray today that you would continue to show us your love and your power and your beauty so that our hearts would be changed, so that Hillcrest would be changed, so that Moose Jaw would be changed and that our nation would be changed, and that we would have our hearts turned back to you that you would restore our land thank you that your love never ends you're good God